This is The Way Forward. I'm Judy Olian, President of Quinnipiac University. We're podcasting conversations with provocative trailblazers who offer innovative solutions to today's challenges and ideas for tomorrow. In this episode, Jennifer Brown, Dean of the School of Law, and I have a conversation with Tony Bush, Executive Vice President and Global Head of Government Affairs for News Corp, and Alicia Spearman, General Counsel and Vice President for Human Resources at Quinnipiac University. We discuss their career experiences, starting out as lawyers and ascending the ladder across government, corporate, and nonprofit organizations, and how they've navigated their roles as black women, personally and professionally. Thanks for joining us on The Way Forward. Welcome to The Way Forward. I'm Judy Olian, president of Quinnipiac, and I'm joined today first by our co-host, Jennifer Brown, who is the dean of Quinnipiac's law school. And then we have two wonderful guests. Uh, We have Antoinette, or Tony Bush, who is executive vice president of Global Government Affairs for News Corp, and our own Alicia Spearman, who is our general counsel and vice president for uh, human resources at Quinnipiac. And it is so fantastic to have two, well, three power women on on this panel and uh, also to be celebrating Black History Month with two women of color who are really inspiration uh, to us all. So I'm gonna turn it over to Jennifer to start with the first question. Before I do that, let me just make sure that you, our participants, remember to put in your questions throughout the the hour that we're together in the Q&A. Just enter your question and we'll do our very best to to get to all of them uh, along the way. Jennifer. Great, thank you, Judy, and welcome everybody. Um, You know, so as Dean of a law school, I, I always love to talk to people Uh, who have become lawyers to ask, you know, when did you first start to think that you might want to become a lawyer? What was it that attracted you to law? How did you see it, you know, sort of advancing your own personal and perhaps professional aspirations? Um, Would one of you like to get started with that one? Well, I'm happy to, I'm happy to start. Um, So my father was a lawyer. Um, So I had the benefit of of watching him and learning about the legal profession from him. He actually worked um, as a state's attorney in Illinois um, when I was growing up. Um, And when I was in college, you know, I did explore different things, but, you know, I wasn't a math whiz, you know, I, sciences weren't my thing. Um, I was a history major um, and the law was something that um, was always an interest of interest to me um, because of the ability to impact society in so many different ways. So mine was a little bit different. I actually just copied my friends. Uh, they were going to go get their LSAT packages. I said, where are you going? And what is that? Get me one. <laughs> and um, it was just really random because I had a job already waiting for me at home after college. And I was going to do that. And my brother was like, you're not going to save money. You love school. Just continue to go to law school. And I think it was literally the best decision I've ever made because it's a profession and you can do so many things with a law degree. And um, I've loved every minute of it. 
And I did have a cousin who was a lawyer um, in Ohio, but I didn't talk to her much about it. It was just really my friends that are around me who had parents who were lawyers and they wanted to go to law school and I just copied them. <laughs> well, it's interesting and we'll talk about your careers in greater detail, but, but in the end, both of you have gravitated to uh, careers that are not the traditional law firm associate or partner. So what prompted you to gravitate in that direction? And Alicia, I think your first job was not in a law firm. Right, I wasn't in a law firm. I actually only worked for a law firm during my law school summers. And the reason I didn't really go that route, to be quite honest, is because at the time when I graduated, the lawyers that I met did not seem that happy. And if you guys know me, I don't like misery. So I did not want to be miserable. So I went the public route. I clerked for a judge at first. Then you probably don't know this. I worked plaintiff side. Uh, representing plaintiffs doing employment law. And then from there, I just kept getting my different experiences. So I think you just go where you get a, a job and find out what you like and what you don't like, and then kind of mold your career from there. Yeah, and, and Tony, what would you say to that before we get into the specifics of your careers? Um, I would say that... Um, because you did go to a law firm for a long time. Right. I went to, I started out in a law firm before I went into the government. And, you know, my decision to um, go to a law firm was kind of like Alicia's decision to go to law, to law school, which was, you know, that seemed to be the easiest thing to do. And everybody was doing that. Um, and I went to a law firm. Um, I went to a really large law firm at first, um, uh, and then there was a big conflict of interest, and I ended up at a very small law firm, and I'll never forget, my mother always said to me, well, they take you back at Kirkland and Ellis when I left there, because, you know, I left to go from a huge uh, multi-city firm to a very small firm that only had 37 lawyers, um, but it turned out to be a great decision, um, and then I made the transition going into the government. Um, and at the time I made the decision to go into the government really because when I looked around at the law firm the, in the practice area that I was in particularly, most of the successful lawyers had spent some time in government. And a lot of people in Washington go in and out of the private sector and the government. So I'm, I'm gonna just ask you a follow-up question on that. So, to be specific, and, and the law students on this call will know these firms. You started out, as you said, at Kirkland and Ellis, then to a small firm, Wiley and Wright, then to the US Senate, and, and we can talk about your role there, to then to Skadden, ARPS, et cetera, uh, where you headed the communications law group. And now you're essentially running all of global government affairs for a major global media firm. Uh, for News Corp. So when you look back and, and say, what are the common denominators? How, how did the dot connect, dots connect looking backwards in terms of what your interests and passions are that have been fulfilled through that trajectory? You know, I would say that once I um, narrowed in on focusing on communications law, which also includes media, you know, I started out representing primarily radio and television stations before the Federal Communications Commission, and then I'm very old, so I was old enough to work on the early cell phone applications when the cellular industry was starting, when the satellite industry was starting. 
but I really became fascinated by technology and media. Um, and, um, and a lot of my career was focused on that, what, how the law and policy was gonna evolve as we had new technologies. And I know it seems like, okay, I made this big leap from that to going to like old media to the newspaper industry. But actually at the time that I joined News Corp, um, News Corp really is at the intersection of the transition from print to digital, you know, and interaction with the large tech platforms, Google and Facebook, um, you know, how we're going to make that transition. So, uh, you know, I would say the common theme is that, you know, I decided I wanted to focus on technology, um, how technology was going to be integrated into our lives, you know, from a legal and regulatory perspective. And I've sort of continued on that trajectory. And you feel very much that News Corps is still at that cutting edge of that transition from old to new media? Yeah, I think so. You know, one of the things, for example, the Wall Street Journal, um, famously, even um, when everybody started giving their content away for free to Google and Facebook, the Wall Street Journal kept their paywall, right? You know, we've always had a subscription model for the Wall Street Journal. And you probably all notice now that pretty much that's the direction that all newspapers and magazines have gone is moving to subscriptions. Because as we've moved into the digital world, and the traditional advertising market has really gravitated towards Google and Facebook who really dominate that market. You know, companies had to figure out another model. And fortunately, we already had the model of the subscription model, um, which is supplemented by um, advertising, but also the digital marketplace is a very different marketplace for news. Um, and so, it's, you know, for large newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, who do in-depth investigative reporting, you know, it is really critical that we figure out how to get this right. So uh, in a little bit, I do want to kind of touch back on this idea of the, the frontiers of law, Tony, because you've clearly worked on them. But just before before we go there, I, I kind of want to loop back on this idea of indirect but purposeful career paths and, and ask Alicia, uh, because, you know, you begin at the FBI, right, with the what highest security clearance that, that exists, right? Uh, you then go on to nonprofits, you go to uh, corporate settings in legal departments, and then into human resources until finally uh, you, you join us here at Quinnipiac. And so I guess what I'm interested in hearing from you is how you see your, your legal training uh, preparing you for these varied and really expansive roles. Thanks, Jen. I will say, I know I made the comment about the firm that I didn't want to go to a firm, but I do recommend that my mentees start go to a firm and get legal training. I do under, recognize that value. But for me, because when I started with the CHRO in Connecticut, limited resources, I had tons of cases thrown to me. So it's like trial by fire. But as you can uh, understand, as a dean of a law school, Jen, my litigation uh, practicum in law school was everything. I had mm -hmm. clinics. 
and I learned how to do my lit files in my clinics and interact with people. That proved to be invaluable when I first started with the with the you know government and the FBI. You're right, top secret security clearance, traveling around the world, defending the FBI. Got you know more and more employment law experience, and then I had a call from Children's Hospital in D.C. Can you come in house and be our general counsel? And so you have to be a little bit flexible because at that time, and Tony, I'll age myself as well. When they had beepers, right? So the attorneys in the office, we all had a month call. So even though I wasn't a corporate attorney per se, I was a labor and employment expert. We had to deal with you know blood transfusions and Jehovah Witness and all different types of the law. So you have to. When you're on call, you've got to be the lawyer and kind of, you know, expand. But I think really it's just like each uh, opportunity, building my skill set and learning, learning what I like and what I don't like. And um, it's just held me in good stead to be able to be industry agnostic, right? I really don't care what industry I'm in. It's about understanding what makes the industry work. Um, obviously, I had a passion for every place I worked, honestly. Uh, being at QU, it's fascinating because we're you know, grooming lifelong learners and we're grooming people who are gonna be in the workforce and be global leaders. So that's extremely exciting to me because I love people and human development and seeing people succeed. So I hope that answered the question. It does. And and, and if I can't just follow up, Judy, I, I, you know, one of the things we say in, in law is that if, if there's one central skill, it's issue spotting. And I just wonder if that resonates uh, for you, Alicia, and for you, Tony, as you move from one, area to another that the that lawyers are are there to spot the issues and, and yeah. we hope to to answer them too. Yeah, I think also people don't underestimate the fact of our analytical training. You know, the way that we're trained in law school, you take it for I took it for granted. It was like all my friends are lawyers, you know, not all my friends, but the ones I went to law school with or college with. And uh, but then when you start working in different environments and you have that analytical mindset and you're able to issue spot. Right. So you have to react to a lot of problems. But your weight and gold is when you're proactive, when you keep seeing a recurring problem and then offer up a solution. So, you know, I, I love the law, though. I'm, I'm a law geek, so I'll stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really um, important point is that, you know, legal training think teaches you how to look at pro to identify the problem, look at it, and then come to a solution. Um, and sometimes that requires you to look out of the, you know, um, out of the, you know, four corners of a particular page that you're working on and to be creative. And one of the things I suspect is true uh, for both of us is that um, the breadth of experiences we've had have um, enhanced our problem solving skills. And I would say that um, uh, the other skill that I think is really important is the ability to articulate the problem and the solution in a way that people can understand it. You know, the public speaking skills that you get um, as you're training um, um, to be a lawyer, whether it's, you know, the Socratic method in the classroom where you have to, you know, talk about the issue out loud, participating in moot court, debate, all of those skills, I think, are also critical to success in whatever you do. So, you know, I, I want to just um, follow up on, on the points that you both made and, and the breadth of your experiences that are brought into your problem solving skill sets. Um, one of my friends, Peter Gruber, who was actually on one of these way forwards, talks about the fact that traditional careers are thought of as if they're a narrowing pyramid, when in fact you should think about a pyramid as an inverted 
triangle where you're constantly broadening your skills. And as you say, Tony, bring the uh, issues to bear from all of the experiences that you've had. So don't be afraid of moving laterally because that is in fact an expansion of your career. And I hope um, Alicia won't mind me saying, but if we hadn't combined the role of general counsel with vice president for human resources, I doubt seriously that you would have considered our role because you wanted to bring all of the skills to bear. Yeah, I mean, as a labor and employment lawyer, I didn't know this when I was a younger lawyer. Most people segue or employment lawyers segue into HR roles. And then when you offered them both, I was like, both my passions, legal and HR, like it was impossible to pass that up because it's just such a, both, both areas, you have to be reactive to a lot of issues. But if you stop and think, you can do policies that are so impactful. Um, we've done, you know, Bobcat for our retirees. So now they're going to have a golden ticket and they can go to any athletic game if there's availability, right? That's just something that we just made up because you care about your people. You're thinking about them. You're respecting the people who've worked for a long time. I mean, there's a, so many things that you can do. Um, so the combination of the role, I really appreciate that I was given this opportunity to do both at Quinnipiac in the hometown where I grew up. <laughs> So I'm going to go to a question from um, our audience, from Angela Maddie. Thank you, Angela. This is directed at you, Tony. She says, Attorney Bush. Um, could you comment on your time on the Senate Commerce Committee staff? And would you recommend that students at some point pursue that kind of public policy angle um, in, in their career? How did it enhance yours? Thanks, Angela. Well, I think that the time I spent in the Senate was transformative to my career. You know, when you're in a law firm and, you know, I had great experiences at every law firm that I was at. And um, I think Alicia is right that, you know, it provides great training, uh, particularly um, in writing and analytic skill, analytical skills, you know, honing that in the law firm. But my time in government gave me the opportunity to look at the communications law issues that we were dealing with at the time. It was regulation of the cable industry, public broadcasting, and also uh, regulation of the telephone industry um, from the perspective of the public interest. You know, I mean, the job and when you're in the Senate working on um, a committee is to say what would best serve the American people and how we approach, you know, regulation, deregulation of um, businesses. It gave me the opportunity to be exposed. To, when I went to the Senate, I had only really worked on the radio and television space. You know, it broadened um, it broadened the skill sets that I had, the substantive knowledge to including telephone companies, cellular and uh, cable, um, as well as public broadcasting. Um, but also, you know, the skills of bringing divergent interests together to try to get legislation. The Cable Act of '92. Um, the Cable Act of 92 was landmark legislation because it imposed rate regulation, it reimposed rate regulation on the cable industry, but it also restructured the content community with, you know, cable operators back then, you know, and today are vertically integrated. You have cable operators that distribute content, but they also own content. And we enacted a provision that prohibited cable operators from depriving competitors of access to that content. 
you know, and this was in the early years of the development of EchoStar and DirecTV, and it really promoted the opportunity for there to be more con con uh, competition in the distribution market. So it was really, it was a transformative experience for me, you know, both in my substantive knowledge, but also in um, understanding how to solve and achieve a very complicated, uh, complicated goals, working with divergent interests. And clearly that made you, I think you were there for what, six years? Yeah, a little over six years. And that clearly made you more attractive when you came back to um, Scadden. Yes, it did. It created a lot of opportunities. And, you know, I mean, some point, you know, people always ask about networking, but, you know, you develop a lot or wide range of contacts when you're working in the government. Um, but also, I think, you know, the skill set and, and then when you're advising clients or if you go to a company, you know, you now understand both sides of the issue. You understand it from the private sector side, but you also understand what regulators and legislators are looking at pick up on that, Judy, just this question about working in the, the public interest and that service to the American people, um, because it, 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 it seems that, you know, as you discuss it, Tony, you're operating in this industry that is really at the crossroads of the digital revolution, and it's bringing uh, tremendous opportunities to narrow inequality gaps, um, say, in access to education or healthcare, a variety of services. Um, and, and possibly raising living standards. And um, on this theme of, of public service, do you, do you worry that the digital revolution could also be creating a digital divide that could exacerbate inequality, sort of leaving poor or vulnerable populations further behind? And have you, have you thought about how we might address that potential for an exacerbation of inequality? We you know I, it's funny you said I was actually just on a panel where I was talking about that um, last month. And even though it's not in my core, you know, work every day, you know, more in my nonprofit and public interest side, you know, it is a huge challenge. Um, and I think COVID, um, the COVID pandemic has highlighted that, you know, the challenges facing uh, low income and poor communities and getting access to broadband, high-speed internet, you know, the, um, the lack of, you know, equipment um, and what a difference that makes. I think it's going to be um, an important issue to be addressed. And I think that, um, uh, you know, while there are many um, terrible things that have happened as a result of COVID, you know, the one thing that I am hopeful is that um, governments at the federal, state, and local level have recognized the critical nature of expanding our broadband system to rural areas, making mm -hmm. sure that low-income communities have access. Um, and, you know, we even see companies in the private sector really stepping up to try to address this. But, you know, my hope is that, you know, in the next four years, one of the things that we're going to see is are dramatic changes in this space. Um, Alicia, let me pick up on what we asked uh, Tony, and because you you've worked all over the place in a sense, uh, we mentioned the the FBI, we mentioned Children's Hospital, you've worked in the private sector at Aetna, at Hubble, at Electric Boat. Now, um, well, 
and actually Children's Hospital was a nonprofit. And now, of course, in the education sector, how, how do you compare and contrast working for the federal government, working for the nonprofit sector, working for the private sector? Well, first, I want to also say I worked on the Hill, too. So I, I interned for Congresswoman Rosa DeLora for a semester while I was on Howard University on exchange. But wow, then I worked great. for a whole summer for Congressman Congress. Dolphus. Hmm? Yeah. I just mentioned that Rosa is our congressional representative from New Haven and now yeah. the chair of the Appropriations Committee in Congress. Yeah, yeah, she's she's wonderful. And I worked a whole summer for a congressman from New York. So and then when you let me a general dynamics electric boat. I had to do a lot of workforce development, right? So I'm on the Hill going with the congressman. So I agree with Tony that the federal government, some of the experiences you can get learning to network, um, you know, just understanding different points of view and how to bring people together and the perspectives to get what you want is invaluable. And for me, the federal government, um, FBI was a little bureaucratic, right? It was, it was great, you know, traveling around doing trials, but I think that, um, just getting different experiences and knowing the parties and what people want. I think it doesn't matter about the industry, Judy. I just think you have to, like, your skill set and how you communicate and how you lead, how you're agile, just to bring to the forefront whatever your organization's goals are. So that's like a big thing to me. What are our goals? What are we trying to achieve? Working for an organization that's positively influencing and moving forward. So I, I guess I just, there's, there's another thought of, because I know we do have students watching this and I, I would love to hear from uh, Alicia and Tony. When people come to ask you for advice, and I imagine they do from time to time about possibly pursuing a career in law or uh, in the legal industry in some way, what kind of, I mean, not only what kind of, um, advice do you give them, but also what kind of questions do you ask them sometimes about themselves or uh, to, to help to guide them in these decisions? T Tony, you want to go? Me? You can go first. Okay. Um, first of all, I always encourage people to go to law school because I think your opportunities are so vast, right? You can have a law degree and be a lawyer practicing a firm, practicing the government, private nonprofit, but you also can be a chief operating officer and executive director of an agency. So it really just gives you wide open because people know that you've taken the time and you have this great analytical training. And so I kind of went into it naive. I copied my friends, but when I thought about it, I was like, wow, you know, I could go to court and maybe write a brief that's going to win for my client. Like that's kind of how I thought about it. like, I'm going to win or helping people. And I think there's just so many from civil rights to just, uh, you know, there's so many topics like tax law, real estate law, media, I mean, on and on and on. So, you know, what's your passion? What do you like to do? Not everyone's going to be a litigator in the courtroom, right? But then there's people doing transactional work. That's extremely important. You can change lives and you can help your overall community be better by, you know, your legal expertise. So I would just ask them what their passion is. And it's going to be hard, right? First year is the worst year in law school. It's extremely hard but we've all gotten through it and you'll get through it as well. You know, I, um, it, it's interesting that you said, what questions do you ask? You know, I ask, you know, if they have a passion or an interest. I mean, a lot of people talk about the importance of following your passion, but sometimes, you know, um, people don't know what their passion is yet. 
And one of the benefits of law school and summer jobs, and even early in your career, I mean, you know, as you've seen, the two of us have changed, had had multiple jobs throughout our careers. Um, and it is not uncommon for, you know, lawyers to frequently change jobs. Um, and so, and it's okay. You know, when I first started practicing, I thought I wanted to be a litigator. And then when I got to, you know, because it was so much fun in law school, you know, moot court, you know, trial practice, I loved all that. But then when I got to the firm and I actually did some both on the corporate and, and pro bono side, I kind of felt like this wasn't for me. And so I tried out a couple of berries and ended up in communications law. So it's okay not to know what you want to do. If you do know what you want to do, then it's important to try to pursue that. I just want to emphasize that point, what Tony just said, because I worked on the Hill um, for the Congress people. So I thought I wanted to be a Congresswoman. Once I had that experience, I knew that wasn't for me, right? And you're not always going to know. I have a little cousin who's like, I don't know. I'm like, just start somewhere. Like, try this to see if you like it, because knowing what you don't want to do is as important as knowing what you want to do. So I know nowadays people declare their majors and they're supposed to know where they're supposed to go. It's okay if you don't know. Just start somewhere, get your experience, because your internships and talking to people may help you figure out what's really for you. Excellent. Um, Tony, I'm going to ask you because you happen to be steeped in the media industry and the Wall Street um, News Corp owns obviously the Wall Street Journal, but a lot of other major um, uh, news publications all over the world, the New York Post, Barron's, HarperCollins, the major media in Australia and the UK. And yet we're in an era where um, people seem to be dividing themselves politically and dividing themselves around what media they consume with folks um, trying to separate fake news from the truth, uh, overcoming the, the notion that media clearly uh, leans either left or right. How, how do you restore the image of information media as being objective and fair and accurate? Yeah, I think that one of the challenges that we have is that, um, and I, and I, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the transition to digital and, um, you know, I don't want to totally blame the tech platforms, but you know, there is this concept of clickbait, you know, that the way um, platforms, Google, Facebook, Twitter, you know, the way they make money um, is by grabbing people's attention. And so, you know, in order to do that, you know, they need sort of more and more outrageous content, right? Because a lot of people are going to click on, you know, a story, you know, that's salacious or, you know, it's not just timely news. And so the challenge I think is going to be, and I think there's a lot of focus on that, you know, in Australia, they're looking at um, changing the laws to actually require content provide, I mean, uh, the tech platforms to pay newspapers and, you know, some people may have followed the fact that, you know, Facebook last week decided they were going to block people from sharing any um, content from newspapers. 
And a lot of people pointed out that by blocking newspapers, you are actually blocking, you know, the one really legitimate news source um, for information. Um, and I think the other problem is, is that people have confused opinion with news, right? Opinion is not news, right? And so that, you know, anybody can go on and say whatever they want, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily news. And so I think that um, uh, this debate that the newspaper industry is having, and, and they're having it globally with the tech platforms, is the goal of promoting, you know, real journalism, right? I mean, all newspapers have opinion sections, but they also have just the general news. Um, and I think it's very different than what you're seeing on cable, um, which, you know, cable news channels have um, moved more in the direction of opinion and not news. And so I think that it is, we are in the midst of this debate. And I think it's gonna be really critical for us to have a world um, and a digital world where there's an opportunity and we have an economic opportunity for um, for new services to survive and that will reward um, in-depth journalism and investigative journalism. And, and I recommend that those who are interested in this follow the recent News Corps um, tussle with Facebook and, and Google in Australia um, about the provision of, um, of or the transmission or dissemination of uh, the the print media on their platforms and and how that's how that's compensated. But I think your point is that this notion of of eyeballs has exacerbated the lack of objectivity in news just to capture sensationalism, to to, to catch eyeballs. I'm gonna just flip the topic for a moment. Um, and, and give the audience some factoids and then ask you both to reflect personally on this. Um, so these days, and these are pretty current data, 52% of law school students are female, 36% of practicing lawyers are women. So 52 versus 36, 17% of equity partners in private law firms, uh, as in those who share in the quote profits, 17% of equity partners in private law firms are women, and only 3% of black women. And um, of the managing partners in the 200 largest law firms in the US, only 4% are women, and almost all of those are white. So I, I could go on and on on these numbers, but we get the drift that the persistence of, uh, and, and I'm quoting from a, a, a very recent uh, report of the ABA and ALM intelligence, that the persistence of gender bias is a significant inhibitor to the advancement of all women and especially of women of color. So here we are um, very fortunate to have two women of color, inspiring role models who've achieved major career success from the springboard of, uh, of lawyers. I want to ask just first of all a personal question of how the last year um, the tragedies, the horrifying acts of violence against um, 
Blacks has, has impacted you personally and, um, and also how that has motivated you towards change uh, around you and your communities. And I, uh, I leave you to um, choose who's gonna answer that first. I'll defer to Tony first. <laughs> and this is also a, a question I'm picking up on that I'll, that I'll um, follow up on. And that's from Professor Marilyn Ford, who I'm sure um, Alicia is, is good friends with. And you may know um, uh, Tony because she's a faculty member of ours. Um, well, there, there's sort of a lot packed in there. But I'm going to start with the end and then I'll work backwards. You know, with the, um, the tragedies that we've seen um, um, that have brought to the fore really the, um, the, the, the terrible uh, discrimination that African-Americans have faced in this country, um, you know, that has led to the Black Lives Matters movement, you know, I was thinking about this today and I really actually feel relief. You know, while, you know, there was a huge sadness around all of the events that have happened, you know, I actually felt some relief because as an African-American and African-American in corporate um, worlds, you know, it has been very difficult to get people to understand the lives and experience of African Americans in this country. You know, those of us who have sons, you know, that you have to have the talk with them. You know, I can't, you know, countless conversations I've had with people about it is different for African American men and women than it is for others in the society. And so having, um, I mean, it's, well, it's terrible that these things happened. The one benefit is that we are now having much more honest and real conversations and there's less need and burden, you know, because I did feel like, you know, it's, it's like my responsibility to try to get people to understand this, that now you kind of get to skip that conversation a little bit and go to, okay, we acknowledge there's a problem. What is the solution? Um, and so, you know, it's... Um, you know, that, that explains why, you know, in a way, you know, I feel relief because I think out of this terrible tragedy, these series of tragedies, you know, the country, um, corporate America, governments around the country are having honest conversations about how to address these issues. Um, going back to the, um, to the questions about, you know, I, when I started Kirkland and Ellis, I was the only black woman lawyer in an office of 90 lawyers in Washington. Um, and then when I left and went to the smaller firm, it was 37. I was the only, you know, when I became a partner at Skadden Arps, you know, more than 10 years later, Again, I was the only African-American woman partner. And while um, it was frustrating in a lot of ways, you know, it was also, um, uh, it was, I viewed it also as an opportunity. 
is an opportunity to mentor other women and diverse lawyers at the firm. You know, sometimes it was also helping paralegals and secretaries. Um, but, you know, I viewed it as my one of the benefits of being in that position was an opportunity to try to bring people along to try to impact hiring decisions, you know, um, the hiring process um, to open it up to have the firm say, look, you know, we have a lot of, you know, it's, people always talk about it, you know, the white shoe law firms that they only interview at the Ivy League schools, when in reality, a lot of the partners at those firms did not go to those schools. Right. And so pointing that out to people and saying, okay, we need to interview at a broader selection of schools if we want to diversify, you know, the skill set we have. And why don't we just start with some of the law firms that you, I mean, some of the schools that you all went to, right? Um, because, you know, the, that, you know, that was a reality. But it is, um, you know, it has changed, um, but the change is coming very slowly. But again, I think that, you know, the events of the last year, and I also think that another silver lining of COVID has been the understanding about the ability of people to work from home. And I think that is gonna help level the playing field in a lot of ways um, that it couldn't before, because we all felt this, I mean, even, you know, I felt this, tension when I was at the law firm about wanting to spend more time with my kids. You know, when I first started practicing men, you know, fraternity leave, none of that, but, you know, men also want to spend more time with their kids, but now it is much more okay. And I think that um, coming out of COVID, it is going to be easier um, for women to stay in the legal profession, because I think some of the choices are not going to be as dire. Before Alicia answers, let me just say that Professor Ford pointed out, and you may not be aware of just how you impact others by being you, each of you, in your inspiration and as mentoring. Professor Ford pointed out that you were a role model to her daughter, Keisha Kamari, who was a scatter. Okay, so Alicia. Yeah, I'll start the opposite way. Um, I think that the stats you said are very true. Everyone knows that the numbers for minority female lawyers are low in women. I think the big joke in the firm uh, for women are, uh, should I go part-time? Because there's no such thing as part-time. So they'll get less pay and still be working full-time hours, right? So hopefully, like Tony said, now with COVID and people know you can work from home, that will get better. I am encouraged because personally in Connecticut, We've had Mo Ogilvie, who's been named managing partner of the Connecticut Office of McCarter in English. I know her well, we're good friends. Uh, Leander Dolphin just got to be named one of the managing partners of all of Shipman and Goodwin, right? And then you have equity partners like Britt Marie Cole Johnson at Robinson and Cole. So finally people are getting their recognition. And um, it's funny because some people say, is it because of this, you know, uh, this racial reckoning? No. There's, there's, there's no easy quotas or anything because you're not gonna get a position, especially as an African-American woman, unless you're qualified. Um, I think that firms, this is not rocket science. That's why I never wanted to do diversity inclusion work because the science has been out there for 30 years, what to do to make a change. And it's business sense to have a diverse uh, law firm and organizations because that's what your clients look for. Diversity of thought, 
changes the return on investment. It's, it's already data proven. Once again, look at McKinsey for 30 years. So it's just do it is what you should do. Like Judy did it. Judy's management council is diverse. Just do it. She found the top players do it. On the thing about the racial justice, I mean, the talk. I mean, my mother had to talk with me and my brother. My mother would not let my brother get a black leather jacket because it was always the black guy in the black leather jacket, right? I mean, at that time we grew up in Hamden. I mean, you got stopped coming to our house because why were black people coming out to this part of the neighborhood? It's ridiculous, right? And then you fast forward. I've had to talk with my child since she was nine because the way I was raised and the way we raised our child, racism and sexism exist. I'm sorry, it, they do, it does. It's not going away, but it's how you deal with them. So we, we were raised not to have it as an excuse that it's unfortunate, it's unfair, but to go around it. But the interesting thing you learn from these kids, my daughter's a senior, uh, senior high school student, they're not having it. They're like, Ma, that's, it's not fair, so it's not right, right? So their sense of justice is very keen. And I think like Tony, I think that was a really good point, Tony, I'm kind of relieved. Like now people can finally talk about it because with the George Floyd, it was so egregious, right? It was so heart-wrenching that a lot of people are talking like, have you had these experiences? People don't know the experiences that I had because I don't talk about them, about getting spit on in the bus at school. I don't talk about, you know, being the first person of color here and there because I just go in and do the Alicia thing and get my job done. But that is an extra burden if you ever want to talk to your colleagues about how you're perceived and what that may mean in terms of your compensation, you getting an extra raise in corporate America, you really gotta fight for it. Even though I know I'm doing better than my colleagues, I have to fight for it. Um, but I think that with Tony and I, you know, Wellesley graduates, uh, we just, I break camp. Like, if you're not gonna give me what, what I need and deserve, I'm leaving. And um, so, <laughs> um, and then one thing I'll say about the social justice, the best thing I did this summer with my daughter, uh, African-American attorneys did a silent march to the Connecticut Supreme Court. And it was just so moved. There's other marches going around. They just parted the way while we went up to Supreme Court. Yeah. And we stood on the Supreme Court and some people gave speeches and just looking out to that diverse crowd of people who were just angry about the injustices, tears were rolling down my eyes and my team's eye. And uh, it was just something we're never gonna forget, You know, doing signs and doing a protest with her. It was just amazing. Can I pick up, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, about what you've just been saying, both of you about, you know, sort of being the only one in these contexts. And, and um, Tony, I, I found it so moving to hear you say, the one way you responded to that was to look around, um, to see the opportunity to lift up others around you, other women, other men and women of color, um, whatever positions they may have been in, um, in your organizations. But do you have other, I don't know, sort of strategies that you followed, other advice you might give to um, men and women of color in law uh, who may find themselves, again, still, unfortunately, right, the only um, in, in some context. What other, other habits of mind or action did you adopt to, to, to deal with these challenges? Well, you know, one of the things that um, was critically important to my success were mentors. And, you know, I have like a lot of mentors, you know, whether it's my mother who, you know, always worked, um, you know, while we were growing up, um, but also was also involved in um, nonprofit and um, charitable activities, you know, how she had, you know, she raised four kids by herself and she did all this. So, you know, whenever I was like, 
lamenting my life with two kids, you know, and a husband, I would think back on her and like, okay, she did with no husband. And so um, I can figure this out. Uh, but also people at my loft, wherever I was, whether it was in school and um, at the law firms and not only looking for other women or minorities, but, you know, finding people in leadership positions at the companies or law firms where I worked, who I could talk to, who could, you know, advise me, you know, on career decisions, on how to be a better lawyer, how to do it, you know, that to me was critically important to my success. And, you know, I continue to rely on um, various mentors, um, you know, as I move forward in my career. And I just interject before um, Alicia responds to this, because we've gotten a couple of questions in the chat here in the Q&A about how do you get a mentor? How do you approach someone to be your mentor? And, and um, Tony, you alluded to that. Alicia, I have a feeling that, that you have no problem doing that. <laughs> yeah, I just think you should reach out to someone you admire. Like, so a couple things about um, finding support networks. When you're a young lawyer, there's young lawyers division, right? You can join as a law school student. So whatever the Connecticut Bar Association, the George Crawford Black Bar Association, the women's division. I mean, when I left little tiny Connecticut and went to DC, that's the first organization I joined was a black female bar association. And I was surrounded by all these people who were judges and other highfalutin positions and then my peers. And we just kind of grew an organization, organization together. So networks are huge. There's this one conference that I've always gone to, whether I've been in an HR role or a legal role, it's called Corporate Council Women of Color. And I always go to that conference because I'm surrounded by the most phenomenal women I've ever seen in my life. So I like to be around people who raise the bar and help me keep my game up. And I saw this labor and employment lawyer from Domino's Pizza, she spoke and I just kind of waited and I tracked her down like, you gotta be my mentor. I thought she was the most amazing woman ever. And so she's my you know, friend to this day. And I mentor a lot of people too. You have to give back because not everyone has had lawyers in their family for generations and they don't you know, know which way to go. And I find just talking to people and giving them advice and giving of your time. I know I can tell Tony's like this too. It just gives us joy. It gives us joy to see somebody else succeed. And I also have a personal board of directors. They're not all lawyers. My two best friends here in Connecticut, one's an educator and one's in healthcare because they know you, right? So they know whether you'll be happy going there. So I kind of just do a pro and con list. I talk to my board of directors. I talk to my mom, talk to my husband, and then I pray about it and then I make my decisions. But definitely get a mentor. A mentor doesn't have to look like you. And it could be inside your organization or outside your organization. But what I'm finding too, it's reciprocal. You learn so much from your, from your mentees as well. You know, and if I could just add, you know, it doesn't have to be, I mean, when I, you know, first started Kirkland Alice, you know, one of my mentors was just a friend who was two years ahead of me, but she was also the only black lawyer at another firm, you know, about the same size in Washington. And so sometimes I would just call her because sometimes you just need somebody to say like, am I crazy or, you know, how should I respond to this? Um, but the other thing is, is identifying what your interests are and participating in activities wherever you work, you know, whether it's, you know, like a couple of my mentors from Skadden, 
I developed because we all happen to be morning gym rats, right? And we would go to the gym and work out. And, you know, so I kind of got to be friends with them. And then one of the people ended up being the head of the Washington office for Skadden Arps, you know, but it didn't start out that way. It started out with, you know, he was running another practice group. Um, and, um, you know, and we just got to be friends because we like going to the gym or, you know, you know, if you have other hobbies or interests, you know, pursuing those and identifying people. But then the other thing, which I just, I I can't emphasize enough is asking people to be your mentor, you know, or going to people, you don't have to say, I want you to be my mentor, but you could say, you know, I saw X and, you know, I'm really curious why you made that decision or, you know, I, you know, or I have a problem, you know, can I talk to you about it? And, and be tenacious because I remember one time someone asked me to be their mentee. I'm like, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so busy. I can't, I don't have time. And she just kept tracking me down. And that was the best lunch we have. We're still friends to this day. She's an amazing young woman. I'm glad that I've been able to you know, help her in her life. So sometimes people will say no, I've been told no, but maybe if they're really somebody you, you know, role model or admire, keep asking them. And let me ask you, because this has also come up on the, on the Q&A, um, as the only person of color, and sometimes as the only female person of color, I mean, so it's a double burden, um, you will encounter issues in the workplace that are uncomfortable, that are perhaps downright biased, that are um, sometimes even cruel. Uh, the last way forward we had was with um, Charles Thayer who had written this book, You Got This Kid, and he had these analogies to how you operate as a young professional. And one of his analogies was the armadillo, that you gotta develop thick skin like an armadillo. So how, how do you, respond did you respond and i'm sure it still happens when things are um slights when things are offensive when things are cruel don't go your way in the workplace which you think are um unfair how do you respond Uh, alicia do you want to start sure I, i think it's easier to respond when you're seasoned because me and tony have been in this game for a long time so i have no hold bars responses that you probably don't want to come for me because I'll give you a, a good answer. So that's different though of being a young lawyer, right? So I think that you, I mean, young lawyer times, get, I go in the bathroom and I cry, right? When things happen that were that, that not right and get myself together. Um, I also think, you know, in this day and age, General Dynamics Electric Boat was founded in the 1920s. I was their first person of color executive, you know, male, female, the first person of color, 2019. So I kind of just addressed, I kind of ignored their um, presuppositions that, you know, we only like people who are eat electric boat. They didn't even like people who came from other general dynamic subsidiaries. They didn't think that you were going to work. I just did my thing. So I think that you, you, you address some of the stereotypes by just performing. And then also you just have a nice way to question like, hey, what did you just say? I'm sorry, you said something, you know, maybe we should talk about that. I'm not sure if you understand. So, I mean, dressing it head on at our season level is much easier now, but I think there's different stages when we weren't as, or I know I wasn't as eloquent as my response. I was very emotional um, about it and felt like I had to like prove myself, but people talk about imposter syndrome. I also think it depends on your constitution, right? I was also fortunate, you know, my mom and my dad, so I've never really lacked confidence, 
So I didn't take that on that you may think that I'm inadequate because I knew that I was adequate. So that's why I talked to some women. I've been on panels with some amazing young women, these IT, law techs, stuff that I could never do, right? And then I see that they lack confidence. So that's the biggest thing that I would tell, tell women and especially people of color, don't lack confidence. Talk to your mentors, talk to your trusted advisors and get advice, um, but don't stop and not apply for a job because you think that you're not qualified. You're probably more qualified than the people who are already doing the job. Yeah, if I, if I could add, that's also another opportunity for when a mentor can come into play. Because I had some awkward situations where, you know, I was at a firm and like an EEO case came up, you know, and I'm doing communications law and I'm not a labor lawyer. And they were like, oh, Tony, can you come to this hearing? I'm like, no, <laughs> right? It's not my fault you don't have any Black people <laughs> to work on this. But I didn't just say no because it was a senior partner asking, but I went to the head of my group and said, you know, it seems a little weird. This is not, you know, how do you think I should handle it? And they actually, he took care of it for me. But, you know, as a more senior lawyer, I would have been more comfortable saying, no, I don't think that's the right thing. But, you know, again, that's another role where mentors can, uh, can help. And then I can't emphasize enough what Alicia said about you know, being confident and going after things. I think for women, and I think this goes back to, I think some of my Wellesley training, um, which is that I felt that um, the women, when I was in law school, I the women who came from single sex schools were really aggressive and very comfortable in the Socratic method in class. You know, I, you know, I could be wrong, but I wasn't backing down. Right, I was going to keep going, and you got to prove I was wrong. Right, um, I wasn't shy about raising my hand, um, but I I have seen a lot of women, you know that, you know, part of our societal training has been, you know, we're gonna, you know, go to school and we're gonna get A's, and then we're gonna get promoted, and we're gonna get this, and that does work. But once you get into the actual work world, whether it's government, corporations, law firms, you have to actually ask for what you want, right? And that is really important and something that I see too many women doing exactly what Alicia was referring to, which is, oh, I don't have, you know, the job says they want all these skills, you know, and you may not have one of them but you probably have three other things that they hadn't thought about that would be good for that job. And you should go for it, or you should ask to work on that case because other lawyers are doing that. And particularly men, they're very aggressive about saying, oh, that's an interesting case. I really want to work on that. And that's how a lot of work, you know, ends up getting assigned. And please note four women on this panel have obviously not been shy about, um, uh, 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 broadcasting their skills. Jen, do you want to take the last question? Uh, well, I, <laughs> I, I feel as if, um, you know, we've, we've covered so many wonderful things and on this topic of resilience and strength. And I'm, you know, if I could sum it up, I guess, in one question is, what is your source of confidence? Where do you get that confidence? I would say mine's from my family. Uh, you know, just having a loving and supportive family and, and extended friend network. Um, 
also, I think that when you, Tony mentioned this a little bit, take stretch assignments, raise your hand for something that you don't know you could totally hit off the park because that's gonna build your confidence. And I do that with my team and my direct reports, give them stuff that they probably don't think they can do, but I know they can do it. And so I think by doing a good job and doing things well, that builds your confidence. By going to someone and talking things through and as a sounding board, that can build your confidence. Going to conferences, invest in yourself and learn from others. You know, just take the time. It's a lot to take out of a half a day or a day away from work, but that investing in yourself will give you confidence. You know, I, you know, again, am also very fortunate to come from a very supportive family and also have a very supportive friend, mentor um, uh, base that I can draw on when I need it. But the other thing that I think is really critical, and it doesn't matter what you're doing, it's like when you take on a challenge, prepare for it. And then when you walk in the room, you're going to be confident. I mean, there's always something that's going to come up that you might not have thought about. But if you have prepared for whatever you're going to do, whether it's meeting somebody, a job interview, you know, a client meeting, whatever it is, you know, you know, prepare for it. And then you don't have to worry about that part of it. Right. And you can really just be present and um, and be yourself and do your best. Okay, I, I lied when I said this was the last question. I'm going to ask you in 30 seconds each because it so happens that you, we, you're both Wellesley graduates. And I want to ask you, in my interest of having lifetime alumni who stay connected and are lifelong learners, what has been your connection to Wellesley as lifelong graduates? Tony, you want to go to me? Well, you know, I both Wellesley and I have to put plug in for Northwestern where I went to law school. I have, you know, good friends from both schools. I participate in reunions and other activities. Um, I will say I'm a little more active probably at Northwestern um, uh, for a variety of reasons, but one is sort of the uh, fact that I have, uh, my career has been rooted in communication law and there are a lot of people connected to that space who actually went to Northwestern. But I think it's really important to maintain ties with your alma maters. Um, I, you know, some of my closest friends are um, Wellesley graduates and um, currently active um, on the board of directors at Wellesley. Um, I was not successful in getting my daughter to go there. <laughs> but I never give up. I never give up. Mine's not going there either, Tony. What can we do? But I, I agree. I think philanthropy and staying connected with your alma mater is very important. I was a financial aid student at Wellesley, and I definitely give back to the Wellesley Financial Aid Society in particular to make sure that other people uh, have an opportunity to come up. And so whether it's $10, $100, $1,000, wherever I go, whatever institution I work for, to help the institution have longevity and attract students and people to work there, I think you should get back to your institution. So for me, it's reunions. I'm close to Wellesley. I go to the reunions often. There's also Facebook group alumni groups, and that's they have fascinating book clubs and different things like that. So anything that you can connect social media with your university it gives you energy. You meet people who came behind you, people who came before you. I love it. Thank you to Tony and to Alicia. What a wonderful 
conversation and to Jen as as my partner. Thank you for uh, showing us the way forward. And I know that you will be impacting many uh, women and men who are lucky enough to be your mentees, to be inspired by your role models. So thanks so much and um, be well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the conversation with attorneys Tony Bush and Alicia Spearman about their varied and very interesting career journeys across the private and public sectors. The Way Forward series is directed by Carla Natal and the podcast is produced by QU student Brian Murphy. To learn more about Quinnipiac's podcast studio and the stories we're telling, visit qu.edu slash podcast and check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Q-U Podcasts. On the next episode of The Way Forward, join Quinnipiac Professor of Finance, Osman Killick, and me for a conversation with private equity leaders, David Kaplan, co-founder of Aries and co-chairman of Aries Private Equity Group, and Vic Sawney, Chief Administrative Officer and Chief Operating Officer of Blackstone, on understanding private equity, how they screen investment deals, and where they see future global market opportunities. Join us on The Way Forward.